we were hunting turkey in Tennessee and this this Tom comes strutting in when I see the distillery and I was like, I wonder if I can make a Jack Daniel bourbon glaze to go on top of this. Once you get into the molecular side of cooking, it's just like anything else. Bow hunters with their addiction for getting the most amount of speed out of their bow that they can. That's the same way I nerd out when I look at a piece of meat. When when a deer walks in, I'm just thinking that I really want to try this recipe out with this. I'm thinking about that if I make a good shot, that his whole back leg is going to be turned into, into you know into trezo. Welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. Today, I'm your host, Alan Bolin, and I have the pleasure of talking with Jeremiah Dowdy, who is nailed it. Good job. An expert on wild game. And I have a ton of questions for Jeremiah because, you know, I, I eat a fair amount of wild game, and I think that I probably don't take full advantage of it and, and it's in its best state because. Some of the stuff I make isn't the best and some turns out good. And so I, I'd love Jeremiah to learn from you today and figure out how to improve my consumption of the stuff I kill. Yeah, man. That's literally why I started my company was to teach people a, a better way of doing it. Like stop wrapping it in bacon, you know, and be like, oh, it's dry. It's this meat to me is phenomenal. And, you know, we can get into my story, but I can't eat domesticated meat. And so... I was thrust and forced into understanding wild game and the flavors behind it and how to cook it. So, well, okay. So you just, you just open, open this up. What, what do you mean you can't eat domesticated meat? Yeah. So 2007, um, I started getting really, really sick when I was eating. Now I worked in restaurants. I was all the way through, you know, general manager, all that kind of stuff. 2007 was getting married. And I was getting super sick, like to the point, like the worst flu of your life, food port, you know, kind of that food poisoning sickness where it's your stomach, your gut, your everything. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, man, what is going on? And so in, like just consistently for like months, you were sick. Oh, for about nine months. Wow. Um, to the point where I was eating nothing but peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and tuna sandwiches, because that's the only thing that I wasn't feeling awful on. Right. And I worked and I was working at high end steakhouses. So I was eating phenomenal food. And then 30 minutes later, I'd be in the bathroom like, dude, I can't, I'm going to go sit in the office and you guys, if you need, if you need me, come out and I'll come out for five seconds. Yeah, you need a USDA prime ribeye. And oh, you yeah. oh wow. And so, you know, kind of long story short, um, about a year goes into it. You know, we've been married for about a year and it starts to like affect my marriage in the sense where I don't want to go out and hang out with friends I don't want to go out, you know, it's like the county fair. My, I'm like, my wife's let's, I'm like, mm, no, I don't feel like sitting by a porta potty for five hours. Like, yeah. uh, you know, losing weight, not having, you know, the joy of, of eating, which I'm a chef. So to me, the joy of cooking is eating, right? It's, it's the final yeah. thing. Just like, just like hunting. Yeah. There's a trophy on the wall, but to me it's filling freezers and, and that's kind of the joy behind what we do. And so started going to doctors, started going to everything just to say like, do I have cancer? You know, like that's, mm -hmm. thing, you know, you Wikipedia, it's like, you've got cancer. And, <laughs> and I'm like, man, what is going on? Doctors are like, okay, well, it's not gluten. It's not dairy. It's not this. It's not that. It's not this. It's not that I'm going, it's something. Uh, so finally I find this, 
I'm in the airport. I'm actually going, um, on an antelope hunt and I'm flying and I'm sitting and I walk in the airport and there's this book called deep nutrition. I don't remember the, the author ever, uh, it's, but it's a lady, a doctor, a micro gut biologist. And she wrote this book about mm-hmm. how everything that affects us is what goes into our body. Right. So there was no heart disease really, or diabetes until we introduced processed foods. There was no this until we introduced this. There was no, mm-hmm. she starts filling all these, all these bubbles. And so I was like, whatever. I grabbed the book and I read it and I couldn't put it down. Like, unless I was out there hunting, I was like, just in this book. And so I ended up writing the lady as, you know, her, find her information on the back of the book. And I write her, I'm like, dude, this is what's going on. And she's like, I'm intrigued. Um, and so through a bunch of testing and trial and errors, she came down to this list, like, Hey, get rid of this list of foods for 30 days. And the number one on that list was bovine and bovine fat. Okay. And I'm like, I work in a restaurant. Bovine is cow. Yeah. And, and Buffalo. And so I'm like, she's like, Nope. And then there was a bunch of seed oils and a bunch of other stuff. She goes for 30 days, get rid of this list. I'm like, okay, for 30 days. And so I remember after the first week I was felt phenomenal. Like, I'm like, this is, this can't be right. You know, like I'm a, I'm an Irish kid, beef and potatoes Mm -hmm. after dinner. And that 30 days goes by and I maybe had one or two problems, but that's because I wasn't reading packages. Right. It has, Oh, beef fat or beef tallow, whatever. Right. Or you're eating sausages and it's cut with beef and pork. So we go back and I'm like, okay, so pork was okay on, on what I'm, yeah. on what she prescribed. Pork was still okay at this time. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it was mainly primarily beef, which is what we eat most in the, in the U S right. And so she's like, okay, well go back to eating that list and get rid of this list. There was two lists. And I remember I went to the restaurant and I pulled out and I pulled a 32 ounce ribeye out and I'm like, I'm like, whatever. Yeah, I get, I can eat for free, medium rare, just S and P on it. Yeah. You know, take two bites and within two bites, I'm in the bathroom puking my guts out. No way. And I was like, gotta be kidding me. So that was the last bite of beef I've had. And that was 2008. Wow. Uh, and so what we started to do, we started realizing is through her, like I was kind of that, that first case study that they were looking at, at this allergy to bovine fats. Um, and so it was an allergy. It's cause it's an allergy. It's not like a, yeah. it's not a IBS type thing. Like even though it's categorized right. under IBS, just because they're, yeah. oh, I don't know what it is. Throw it as IBS. IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. For those, you know, yeah. Uh, and anything that is with your gut that they can't understand, it's like, Oh, it's IBS. Just right. don't eat it. Uh, and now there's more and more and more coming out and they're realizing that it's based on the enzymes within the fat and the meat textures that come from, uh, the way we're processing, the way we're feeding, the way we're growing, the hormones mm-hmm. we're giving to all of our cattle. Um, how we're oh, so it's not like um, okay. So if you found like say say you went, I know there's places where there's wild cattle that have been so wild. We, we have it all lined up. We're planning on going to Hawaii. Uh, I was just going to say Hawaii has wild. I know um, Kauai has wild cattle. So we had it all planned to go film and shoot a whole uh, film with locals there because we can't go hunt them unless you're with locals, right? Okay. Um, and we were going to go film it. We were going to have doctors. We we're going to have, she was going to show up. We we're going to take samples of a domesticated cow in the grocery store, as well as these wild bovines on the volcanoes. And we were yep. in contrast, these animals that have never touched 
any sort of processing ever. Mm-hmm. Or it's been many generations at least. Oh, 80, 100, you know, 100 to 80 yeah. years um, yeah. plus, you know, the Spanish brought these cows over. And, mm-hmm. and so we look at this whole thing. And so now it's lined up for next year where the whole goal is to go out and do this and kind of retest this. But even so, do you know, do you know what would happen if you ate, um, that sort of beef? None. Like we're literally going to have like doctors there. I'm like, and I'm going to freaking, I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut, you know, probably a tenderloin out or a New York. So we can get that off that back. Yeah. Lumbar vertebrae. Cause we're going to donate yeah. all the meat to all the villages. Right. But I was going to take that lower vertebrae and probably make like, like a T-bone or something. So it looks really mm-hmm. funny. Uh, and literally cook it and be like, okay, let's go and take a bite and be like, start the watch. Uh, See what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of, that is what thrust me into this big game world. Um, cause I'm, I'm a bird hunter by trait here in, you know, here in Southern California, our primary goal, our primary hunting is upland game birds. Yeah. We've got chucker, we've got pheasant, we have three types of quail. Cool. Um, we've got, we're at the lower part of the Pacific flyway. So all the ducks that are going from Canada down, they rarely make it to Mexico. They stop in Southern California and be like, Hey, let's, mm-hmm. let's sit here. Cause the weather's great. <laughs> and, uh, so we, you know, so we're hunting crazy. Like I think opening day was Saturday, uh, this past Saturday and at the ponds, they were shooting like, I think 800 ducks were got shot at each. Oh, wow. So, so it's great hunting. Interesting. Oh, yeah, you, know, you don't think of Southern California as great hunting. Oh, I, mean, I know you can hunt, but so the bird hunting is good. Oh, bird hunting is great. Deer hunting. If you know where to go is phenomenal. Yeah. Cookie hunting. We have Rios that are all over. Yeah. I mean, I've got a whole fan of feathers behind me. And so to me, you know, I started hunting when I was six years old. And if it was that whole motto, if it flies, it dies. Yeah. Yeah. I got a whole. So, so pre 2007, 2008, you were mostly bird hunting. 99% bird hunting. Okay. So then you find out, Hey, I can't eat beef. So let's try some big game. Is that how it went? Kind of. How did you, how did you get into it? What, so I, uh, I was at the archery range down here by us, uh, mile square park. And I was getting ready for fall archery turkey season. Uh, cause where we're going and kind of permission I had to hunt, we can't hunt with shotguns. It's air rifle or archery only. And so I was actually at the bow range and I was practicing for fall Turkey season. This was middle September, even though Turkey season for us in the fall doesn't open until November, you know, putting the reps and getting ready, you know, they always laugh cause I'm the one sitting down in, you know, against the pole, pulling back. They're like, just, I go, I'm not going to be standing up at a Turkey. Right. And yeah. And so this old timer comes walking up and he pulls out a bow and it's all, you know, it's all decked out in, in camouflage. And I'm like, well, rarely do you see a guy coming out with a camouflage compound bow and good arrows. And so him and I start talking and he's like, yeah, I'm heading to Wyoming to hunt antelope. I was like, man, I would love to hunt out of state, but it's so expensive. Yeah. It was 2008. And he goes, um, he goes, uh, doe tags in Wyoming are, uh, $38 and that includes tag and license. And I went, say what? <laughs> uh, so I literally put my bow back in my gun case and I drove home and I got on the internet and I, this is before the craziness that is, you know, lo- over the counter leftover tags. Right. I ended up getting a bunch of doe tags and I call a buddy who's a fireman and I knew he had off the next week. I said, you want to drive to Wyoming? He's like, yeah, let's go. Uh, and so we, we, it was funny. We hired, we got in his Honda civic and we drove to the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, where we got tags and we had never really hunted big game before. We had never done anything. And we put in seven days of just backbreaking, you know, mm-hmm. leather, you know, leather busting. 
and we ended up tagging out. Um, and it was just, we were hunting BLM land, hunting public land, and we ended up getting our antelope and we don't know what to do. Cause again, we're bird hunters. So we take it to a local processor. And, and they, Did you gut them or anything? Oh, just from where I am now to where I look back at yeah. 2008, I pulled out, I mean, you, you're probably about the same age as I am. You know, that like that, that red Swiss army knife we all got, we were like, that yeah. has like the tooth, yeah. the tweezers. I pulled that sucker out that I got for my 13th Christmas, never sharpened it, had whittled how many sticks. Right. right. And I'm sitting there trying to gut this antelope with this pocket knife. And I'm like, so you hack the thing open and oh. kind of pull out the guts. It's just a mess. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. And yeah. And this is kind of before the YouTube scene, right? 2007, 2008. And so I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sitting in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, gutting this antelope. And then I'm dragging the sucker back to the, the car. And yeah. then I go, we have a Honda Civic. Where are we going to throw this thing? So we took out all of our luggage that we had in the, like in the, the, <laughs> the, the toolie rack on top, right? Yeah. With a hard shell, clamshell. Take all that out. We shove it all in the back seat. We throw these antelope up in that. And we like ratchet strap the thing down. And we're like, I mean, again, looking back at where I started to where I am now, it's, it's comical. And we drive to this actually really cool. And, uh, and we drive to this butcher and, you know, he looks at us, he charges us double cause we had California license. Uh-huh. And so I'm like, whatever, dude. And so he processes it and we bring home the meat and I hated it. It was like yeah. the worst tasting thing. And I'm like, this is stupid. I yeah. just, I just, I just gave and gave and gave and gave and gave everything I had for this antelope. And it's awful. Now, mind you, antelope is my absolute favorite meat now because I I understand the process of how to eat it and mm-hmm. how to cook it. Mm-hmm. But growing up, there was that mindset like you you kill it, you eat it, right? A lot of us had that mm-hmm. as our parents. And growing up in Southern California, there's a time I remember we shot a crow in my backyard. And you know, if you shoot a crow, like the whole murder comes and crawls in your backyard, and you've got 500 crows calling over a dead crow in your backyard. So my dad shows up from work, and he just he's like, "Who shot a crow?" Me and my little brother are like, well, "I don't know. We didn't know." <laughs> so we go, we pull it out of the bushes. Right. And my dad it's like, pluck it and eat it. And we sat there and we plucked this freaking crow and he threw it on the grill and he seasoning salt. He's like, eat the crow. And I remember we all, we just took like one bite and we're like spitting out the bushes and he goes, don't kill it unless you're going to eat it. And that stuck with me from when I was, you know, eight years old shooting a crow in the backyard. So I'm looking at Isn't this. That, is that where that saying came from by eating crow? I think so. Cause it's because they, they're bad. Oh, it, well, and I think like if you were to eat a crow off a cornfield and like, you know, yeah, Nebraska, I think it'd be phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. But well, it's, it's like, yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you later. Let's talk about that on on the uh, food sources for big game and how it affects the taste of meat. But is, yeah, you're right. It, yeah. And so but we're eating a city crow that's eaten out of our trash can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, eat, you know, the, the roadkill of the whatever and just sitting there. And, but, you know, kind of looking at that process, I was like, I have to figure out how to make this meat taste good. Mm-hmm. work in a restaurant, you understand flavors, you work with sommeliers. So I went to some of the sommeliers. I'm like, what pairs well with overpowering sage? Mm-hmm. Because that, it tastes like you were sucking on one of those wild sage leaves. So, so probably the good news was that the antelope didn't make you sick. The bad news was it tasted not good because yeah. it wasn't single right. Yeah. yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't sick at all. I mean, it was, yeah. and so I figured out how to flavor profile it. I ended up buying that, you know, the, the flavor Bible, which is like this flavor pairs with these 17,000 things, right? Yeah. Is that reliable? I've, oh, I've never heard of it. First oh, of all, but it's a lot of chefs have it in there. Okay. Or just because it'll, I mean, you can take a current 
you know, and it's like, what, what flavors pair well with a current or yeah. uh, okay. every flavor? It's called the flavor Bible. Mm-hmm. The flavor Bible. And does it have like sagebrush fed gut shot mule deer listed in there? No, but you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll make one like the, the field guide version of it. Yeah. There, that's just what I'm saying that we need that. You so should. I have a, you know, when I first started hunting, I started hunting as an adult and, uh, newly married and, I went out and blasted a mule deer, uh, like my first animal ever was with the rifle. It's actually the only one I've ever killed with the rifle. I switched to bow hunting after that, but you know, I brought it home and like, we didn't know how to take care of it. Like me and my buddy, we, whatever, same kind of thing. We strapped it to the top of a four door car, that same story. Like we had no idea what was going on. And then I tried to eat it with my wife and it was terrible. And to this day it ruined her. Yeah. You know, it's a bad experience for her and she's like, whatever, biased against big game. I, I have a couple of successes, like one of the best, best meats. And I don't know if you've had this, but velvet caribou. I haven't had velvet it's, caribou. I've had caribou. It's, it's unreal, man. It's unreal. Like the difference, like once they hit the rut, you know, you can't even, even eat them in the rut. Right. Like caribou's inedible bull caribou are inedible during the rut. They like drink their urine and all kinds of stuff and it sours the meat. But even then after that, they recover from that, but it's never quite the same. Velvet caribou is unreal. And she had that and she was like, oh my gosh, this is better than beef. But anyway, this bad experience sort of like ruined her, her, um, you know, I guess game eating life. Like she just doesn't want anything to do with it. So, you know, I've like gutted it out and made it happen and figured it out. But do you see that a lot that people have a bad experience in the beginning? And then because of that, like they just never quite come around again. Oh, that's about 90% of the people that say game is gamey. Uh, okay. People that have had, yeah. have had a bad experience or have known someone who's had a really bad experience. Uh, yeah. like I teach, from field to plate classes, like hunting, butchering, cooking classes. Uh, okay. I've taken out 400 new. Is this like in person or online or how do you do this? I mean, it's a four day class that we do. Um, I'm actually working in person. In person. You come out okay. and it's adult hunters. Um, from I mean, I've had an 18 year old to all the way up to a 92 year old dude come out uh, mm-hmm. and everywhere in between, but 400 people in the past six years that I've taken out to, teach them four to five day hunting classes. We hunt whitetail hogs, a waterfowl. We just, just logged in with a waterfowl guy. I've got a turkey guy we're going to be doing this year. Um, yeah. We do archery, we do rifle, we do shotgun, like whatever the, whatever someone is comfortable with. Right. And teach them how to handle that firearm or that, that bow properly and then go through the whole process. But most of these people that come to the class want to learn the better way of eating this meat. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear these horror stories like duck hunting, right? Everyone hates the taste of duck. Mm-hmm. They hate the taste of ducks. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to cook it. So we just had duck opener and I cooked a bunch of duck for people who we had, the, we had this guy walking out of the field, hands us ducks and goes here. Like I, I hate the taste of duck. I just love shooting duck. And I was like, keep the duck, go to my website. Here's some recipes, do it. And the guy, you know, emails me and goes, you changed my mind. Hmm. And I think there's this, there's this idea behind wild game where there's, there's kind of these two notions that I figured out. It's either a super high end fancy. We're going to have a party. So we're going to do some wild game for everybody or a, Hey, I'm just going to wrap it in bacon, throw it in some chili, throw it in some whatever. And the kind of the middle is lost on, on a lot of people. And so how I started my company is what is the middle? I can't eat beef. 
So I have to utilize this wild game, the elk, the venison, the, the antelope, the, the whatever. How do I utilize that as a domesticated meat and figure out how to do it with the lack of fat? Mm-hmm. That's where kind of my company took off. And that's where it just kind of exploded because I was forced to do this. And, you know, next, you know, next year I go out, once I figured out how to, how this tend to make this antelope taste good. And my family loved it. Next year I went and got four tags and I shot four antelope in the matter of, you know, a day. And I've, I've only taken animals to a butcher one time. Wait, wait a second. Did you say that you figured out how to make that first antelope taste good? Oh yeah. Like that. Oh, you did. So even though it wasn't properly cared for in the field, you somehow still pulled it off. Yeah. Well, it's once you understand the flavors um, and you understand that we're not trying to, a lot of people, so say your wife doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. You're trying to mask that wild flavor. Mm-hmm. That's our goal, right? She doesn't like it. I got to mask it. I have to make it taste like something else. What I found out in my cooking is it's not masking. It's, it's pairing and kind of enhancing that flavor. Mm. So I found out with this strong sage flavor, what really pairs well with it is soys, gingers, garlics. Okay. Asian style cooking really pairs well with the really, really sagey. Interesting animals. Yeah. And so if I can take that animal and I can marinate or brine, brine it in some sort of Asian inspired dish, what it does is it actually takes that natural sage flavor and mellows it down to where it's on an evil, you know, even palate level. And, yeah. and so I took, you know, I remember I took that same, I had the other half of backstrap, my wife and my daughter at the time were like, no dad. And I was like, no. And I, I marinated it. I made a homemade teriyaki sauce. I, sliced it real thin. So it'd be tender and skewered it, you know, and then cooked it. And then we all had it. And my wife's like, do that again. Um, hmm, nice. So what I started understanding from that aspect of it is, okay, how can I look at these animals, you know, and then, you know, the next one we shot, what was, it was an older ruddy buck, um, and antelope. antelope and it had that. Yeah. Cause that's kind of where I started. My first like three years was, I mean, I filled my freezer with, you know, cause back then you can get four antelope tags, doe tag yeah. plus two bucks. Over the yeah. So you can go yeah. six antelope. I would shoot six antelope in two days because yeah. you just could. And, mm-hmm. and so it was, you know, we, one of the scenes we were in a, a hotel in Evanston, Wyoming, and I ended up getting a tension rod. Like you get for the back of your truck. And we had, we had seven antelope hanging in the bathtub and I was sitting there butchering down antelope in the bathtub. We took the door off of the, <laughs> off the bathroom and we, yeah. we put it between the two beds. So we had a butchering station. So yeah. cutting, putting it in five gallon buckets, walking out there. And we had this whole, I mean, if you would have walked in, if anyone would have walked in that room, we would have been in jail just for the yeah. human body. Yeah. You know, it's like people laughing, but it's like, we, we didn't know what we were doing. And to this day, I'm still like, let's go. Like, let's. Yeah do what you got to do to get that meat tasting good, getting cool, getting the freezers, you know, we're vacuum sealing in the room on the beds. And then it's like one o'clock in the morning. Someone's like, Hey, go to McDonald's and just get a bunch of cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets because we're still <laughs> four hours left at this, you know? And so what, what are some keys? Um, uh, so I'd like to, I'd like to understand the field care piece, but then also definitely, you know, what you're doing, like how you're pairing the flavors. I mean, maybe, I mean, you've already said it, but I'm sure everything, every animal's a little different, but what are the keys in the field to making sure, like what mistakes do you see people make and what are some like general guidelines on how to take care of stuff so that it's going to taste good later? Uh, I think one is proper shot placement, which you understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're hitting that gut liver, especially if we're hunting archery. We're, 
we're not going to find that animal within an hour. Yeah. Usually. Um, And so you're really permeating that meat. So understanding that modern day broadheads can really do some damage on a shoulder blade. Mm -hmm. Go through that scapula and they can get caught and they can rip and tear. Um, So if it's what. Does does the way the animal dies, like if it dies, you know, in under a minute with a harder lung shot compared to dying over six hours with a gut shot, um, does that affect the meat? Mm. Flavor wise, you're going to find a difference in it. Um, But you'll hear a lot of people saying, oh, the adrenaline caused this animal. No, that's that's false. That's not true. Okay. Cause I have heard that a lot. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll fight people to the death uh, yeah. on it because I'll have guys that will drop meat off my house. Like, ah, this, this buck ran for whatever we tracked it. Yeah. It's going to suck. And then I'll have more for dinner and I'll cook it. They're like, this is amazing. And I was like, yeah, that's your buck. Okay. Uh, so that was an animal that maybe had to be like chased and shot again and everything else. Or, yeah. And, 100%. And, and it still turned out. Okay. So what we have to do, think about this meat itself is, you, you're a hunter. You've butchered animals. I, uh, most people listening to this have probably seen a, a cut of steak at the grocery store, right? Yeah. So meat is like a sponge. It's very, very porous. If you were to take that meat, when, when your adrenaline's running, that meat's going to be real, real tight. And so what a lot of problem that we have is we're not allowing that meat to then rest and kind of let itself relax. And so mm. you see a lot of guys where that animal is very, very tight because of the adrenaline that's pumping through that animal. I mean, you work out, I work out, we go to the gym, our arms are sore because we've just, we've filled it full of all, right. All all the endorphins, all the, everything that we're going to have pumping through our body. And then as we sit at home, it relaxes, it kind of releases. We're like, okay, we feel better after a long hike. Our, our calves are the same way. So Mm -hmm. this animal's legs, thighs, chest, back strap, everything, right. is super tight. Allowing that animal to rest out of water, you know, cause a lot of guys will just cut the animal, throw it into an ice chest, which is full of water. The problem what we're doing is as that animal is relaxing, it's now sucking in all that water, which is still not allowing it to relax. Does that make sense? So you definitely want to keep it dry. A hundred percent. So I tell people, yeah. well, if you have to put it in a black trash bag, throw it in that ice, if there's, if there's water in there, keep that meat as dry as physically possible. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a lot of guys talking about like blanching the meat where they put in the water. They, you know, it's really strong and I'll change that water three, four, five, all you're doing is introducing negative flavors back into that meat because again, it's like a sponge. Yeah. You take a sponge, you wring out the sponge, you then put it on dirty, nasty water and it sucks all that dirty, nasty water back up. Yeah. And so, and then it becomes opaque and clear. It's just, it's, it's nasty. So you want to keep it dry and cool. How, how quickly do you find you need to get meat cooled? I think it depends on the animal. depends on where you're at. Like Mm -hmm. an antelope, ASAP. If you're shooting antelope Mm -hmm. as soon as possible, um, Mm -hmm. you even had it where in the truck we've had, you know, we'll stop and we'll fill the the Yeti with, with 17 bags of ice that are still in bags. Mm -hmm. We shoot that antelope. We bring back to the car. Even if we haven't had a chance to debone it, we're, we're putting a a whole bag of ice in that chest cavity. Yeah. Um, Just to cool it down as fast as possible. Cause a lot of problem too, is you think a lot of guys aren't as quick as, as I am. I mean, I can break down the animal in 15, 20 minutes and there's guys out there that are taking an hour to two hours of doing this animal. Well, that's two hours of that animal sitting in the sun and you're sitting in the grass and you're sitting there butchering it. So even Mm -hmm. that animal cold and then taking the time to process it. Now, if you're out in the bush, it's breaking down those cuts, hanging them in your, you know, in your game bags and letting them cool natural airway. I was, I had a buddy uh, this year 
And it was interesting because luckily we even had a chance to test this. So he shot a bull elk and he, he, you know, he hasn't hunted many, many years. And he, he found the bull elk that night and it was really late and he left it and came back the next morning to take care of it. Did not gut it. Mm. And, and of course the meat was sour the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I told him, I said, look, man, that the guts, they keep, all the heat, like for that to cool, that's at the center of the body. And those quarters are laying up against that gut sack. They are never going to cool, especially the inside part of those quarters. They're up against that hot gut sack all night long. They're never going to cool. I said, if you would have at least gutted that animal and opened the chest cavity and left it laying so that those there's air coming to both sides of those quarters, you know, inside the chest cavity and the, you know, the gut cavity. And then on the outside of the quarters, if you'd at least done that within you know, a couple hours of killing that animal there, then it would have been completely fine. It wasn't anything to do with the outside air. It's right. the heat of the animal. And I said, and even better than that, if you cut those quarters off and hang them in a tree or, or put them somewhere, they will cool down. And if you don't get that animal, I, what I've heard is there's about a 15 hour window. If you don't get that animal to cool down within 15 hours, uh, and it's probably shorter than that, but that's like the maximum, there's a chemical reaction in that meat and it will sour and it like, it's that sour, disgusting. It's like basically inedible at that point. So interestingly, two weeks later, he shot another bull elk, same exact thing, recovered it in the dark. He quartered it, put the quarters, he laid them out on some branches, came back the next day. The meat was beautiful Yeah, and because he got it initially cooled. Yeah. And that's the problem that you'll find with a lot of these guys is, well, grandpa did it this way. Or I saw so-and-so do it this way. And I think the problem we have with a lot of like hunting shows nowadays is they don't show the process after the gripping. Yeah. Right. And so you've got a lot of these guys that they're like, oh, I just didn't know what to do. I had no idea that that's the process I was supposed to go. You know, um, so-and-so did it this way and then they ended it there. And so for me, I'm like, okay, well, I got to start where everyone else ended. Right. And I got to, I got to kind of be that, that that guide at the, at the back half where we're sitting there and even, you know, elk guides in Wyoming, I mean, we're, they're laughing at me because of the way I do stuff. And then they're like, uh, yeah, can I get that knife that you're using? Because that does a lot better and a lot quicker. And then, you know, right. I've shot 500 elk this past couple seasons with all my clients, but yeah, yours tasted way better than mine. Why is that? And it is yeah. because of this, you know, and it, I get in this argument with a lot of guys that are like doing the gutless method. Mm-hmm other animals i go just get the guts out like yeah. it doesn't take that much longer and well yeah but it's if i do the gutless method that it takes it takes longer to cut around and not puncture a gut than it does to go up the stomach i mean even even a, a, a 900 pound elk mm-hmm. those guts they fall out of the cavity it's yeah not, it's not much work yeah. to to get these out and if you're worried about your hands getting yeah. dirty, like then you got to separate the meat from the guts, from the, from the carcass and, and the ground. 100%. Those are the two things that are holding meat in. Like if you, like I, I killed a moose once that, you know, we gutted it, we propped it open. We couldn't get it out that night, but you know, you can't really prop up a moose. I mean, a moose is the, it's oh, yeah. monumental, right? They're so big. And unfortunately the next day, the two quarters that were laying against the ground, the ground insulated those quarters and they soured that night. Yeah. The two quarters that were on the upside were fine because the guts were out and they, they cooled, yeah. you know, in hindsight, you know, we felt terrible about it, you know, and in hindsight, we should have quartered them. 
We should should have quartered them, and and if we don't have a place to lay them to hang it, then you lay out some branches and put the quarters on those branches so that the air can get up from underneath. You don't want to leave them laying on the ground because they, they won't cool. That initial cooling, I found that initial cooling is the number one most important thing. And that goes with anything from uh, an elk to a a dove, you know, like mm. and that that you think about this whole idea. There's I got in this argument with with an upland game bird hunter. Well, a dove won't won't cool without doing something. Well, their guts are all inside that breast and everything as well. Like, and then they got the feathers also. So that's going to, my biggest thing is a lot of these guys, they're, they're say they're, they're quail hunting. Like I just, we just quail hunted a couple weeks ago or last week. And usually you're walking for like eight hours to quail hunt. Right. And you're busting a covey and you're shooting them and you're busting a covey. These guys take that bird. They shot at seven o'clock in the morning and they throw it in their backpack. Right. Yeah. Right. It's their back. It's insulation. Yep. And so I always tell them like, Hey, get a little hook for your side or get a hook for your bag, hang those birds off the back. So they're allowing the whole thing to sort of, sort of like taking that quarter off, allowing it to cool. Instead, you're mm-hmm. throwing it in, in a pack where it's now insulated and it's, and then they're like, Oh, well it tastes real, real, real kind of stuff. Well, yeah. Cause you sat there, you know, there's a, I read, I was reading um, a Lewis and Clark medical journal uh, mm-hmm. and it was looking at some of the food and medicine type aspects they were using with wild game. And in that medical journal, they were talking about how the Native Americans would shoot rabbits and they would hang them on the horses, right? But the method they would do is they would take these rabbits and they would squeeze the guts out, sort of like popping a banana. And so I remember we shot a rabbit and I was like, let's try this. If you start from the neck and you kind of like milk a cow all the way down. Yeah. Everything, the guts, lungs, everything pops out of the back, out of the anus. No way. And you you flick it. Now the animal is completely gutted. Yeah, it's still on. You're not going to get dirt in it. And so yeah. if you look at all those old paintings, you'll see or pictures. You'll see rabbits hanging off of um, off Native American horses. Mm-hmm. All those animals, they were all squeezed, and then so it's a lot. Of cool. And so you take that aspect of it, and you go into big game. It's it's when that gut starts to expand when the animal dies. It's full of gases. Those gases aren't going to stay in that stomach. They're slowly going to leach out. They're slowly going to and when when gas creates itself, it creates hot, right? It creates heat, like you were saying. So you'll actually have inside that gut cavity will actually be hotter than the outside of the meat. And you're actually kind of in this sense, keeping it, as you said, warm, which is again, getting into more of the bio biology of an animal. And I think right. that's where a lot of hunters fail is they look at an animal with the skin on where mm-hmm. as for me, I look at the animal from the inside out and so I look at the liver, the kidney, the heart, the lungs. Okay. How's that animal? Okay. Where, Hey, is this liver look like this? Because they're not finding enough water. So now I need to go find more water for bigger animals because this, and it's like, okay, well now look at the skin. Okay. Now look at the flies that are on the skin. Now, and it's this whole process that comes into bigger, cleaner, healthier animals. But everyone just goes, ah, I saw a big buck. I'm going to go shoot it. Well, it's mm-hmm. a lot more that goes into finding the bigger bucks and it's not just sitting on a hill glassing. It's looking at what they're eating looking what they're drinking, looking at the inside of their bodies. Plus it makes you a better shot. If you know exactly, you know, like as a bow hunter, the heart is going to sit between the sixth and seventh rib. If I ask most people where the sixth and seventh rib is on a deer, where, I mean, where is it mm-hmm. on the outside? Well, after taking it from the out, the inside to the outside, when a deer opens up its leg, it exposes that little white triangle right? Where mm-hmm. two colors, the top, the, the top of the hide meets the bottom of the hide. And right behind it, it has that, that armpit. Yep. At the very top of that triangle 
you can take a knife and shove it right in there. That's the sixth and seventh rib. That is where the heart sits. That's where the two lungs sit. Mm-hmm. Once you understand the mechanics of the animal you're pursuing, you can kill them a lot cleaner and you can have a lot better meat because you're going to have less waste. You're going to have less loss. You're going to have less as archers. Our whole goal is to pinpoint accuracy. Mm-hmm. So now I have somewhere to shoot. I have a bullseye, which is the top of that triangle. And you'd be surprised how fast you find deer because it goes through both lungs and the heart. You know, yeah. the deer's only going 50 yards versus 500 yards because you shot too far back and nicked the back of the lung. And then you can get them cooled right away. Yeah. The faster you can kill them, recover them and cool them, obviously the better results. So let me ask you this. One thing I struggle with um, is certain cuts like you know, the back straps, like, nope, like I kill, you know, a couple of whitetail here and, and, you know, some really great eating meat, like white t- crop fed whitetail is insanely good. hundred percent. And, but you know, like I, like all the steaks, yeah, they go fast. I love them. They're so easy to cook and, and they taste great, but I get to like the burger. I'm like, what am I going to use all this burger for? What am I going to do with this? The roasts. I mean, I haven't had great success with that. So I, I struggle with certain cuts. Like I, I sometimes I, I, I think about, man, I wish I could just get my, you know, I think I'll tell my butcher to make more steaks, but then there, it's not good, good cuts going into the steaks and they're, they're not going to come out the same way. Yeah. If you cut up a roast into steaks, it's not going to, it's not going to work. Like I think it might, you know, it's gonna be- so what do you recommend for, to be able to use, like, what do you do with each cut and how do you, how do you do that? Gosh, man. Um, if you think about it, the the process, like, so I usually leave a lot of my racks bone in, uh, where I'll leave them like tomahawk style. If I want to cut them or I want to do a a three bone, six bone, eight bone, uh, your primary cut from your neck on your back strap down to your eighth, your eighth rib, um, is going to be your thickest cut of your back strap. Then it goes into your lower lumbar vertebrae, which is is where you're going to get, um, your New York's all that kind of stuff. If you want to get a, a T-bone off an elk, like we've done T-bones mm-hmm. off elk, axes, whitetail. Mm-hmm. I mean, whitetail yeah. is only like small, but yeah, I've, I've had, I've had, uh, I had a whitetail butcher for a while that would use a saw yeah. and cut the entire backstrap into basically T-bones. Like yeah. they, on one side, you'd have the, the tenderloin on the other side, you have the backstrap. Yeah. It was insane. Yeah. It was so freaking good. And it's, and it's so easy to do yourself. Like a lot of people are like, Oh, I don't know how to, it's like, Oh, it's, it's a lot easier than you would think. You don't even need a big saw. You can just do like your little hacksaw from home mm. is going to do it for you. Um, but you know, everyone kind of knows how to do that. For me, I love neck roasts. Um, I take off that whole neck and a lot of people are scared with it because it's so full of all that sinew. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sinew actually melts away when you, when you slow cook it. So I use the neck meat for, uh, like barbacoa. So tacos, I use it for, uh, one of my, our favorite things to do is to take during, I'll save a lot of neck meat and I'll do a huge pot of tamales. Mm-hmm. So slow cook that down and then make tamales out of that neck meat. And it's just like shredded pork or uh, you have a cookbook like that you sell? I have a cookbook that is almost done. I'm 85% self done. Okay. Uh, but a lot of my recipes are free online from field to plate.com. Uh, okay. You can check it out. And a lot of the stuff's on there. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So when you say slow cook a roast, what, what, what does that mean? Like how long, what heat a crock pot or, or, yeah. or a smoker or, or what is it? Both. I think it all depends on, on the flavors you're going for. Like, Say you want to take, so, so, so you shoot a whitetail, you're getting cuts out of, for steaks, you're getting cuts out of your, uh, your top round. 
Some guys will do bottom rounds on that, but you're going to, you're probably going to get two sets of row or two sets of rows, two cuts of steaks out of that back leg. Uh, and then your shanks that, that you'll keep off that. So you do recommend doing the round steaks. Cause I've always said, leave it as a roast. For which one? Do you, do you get decent? Uh, top round is probably some of the best steaks out there. So that's off the hind quarter. Hind quarter. Yeah. It's the one that kind of looks like, uh, it's got that really long grain on it. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so the round steaks are, are okay. Yeah. Uh, top round, bottom round is going to be a little tougher. Okay. Um, and then your, your eye of round, I kind of call that my hidden tenderloin because it looks like a tenderloin. It's set there right between your, uh, your, um, your, your sirloin state, like you like your sirloin cut and your top round is going to be sitting right there in the, in between or, or your bottom yep. round sit right there. It looks just like a tenderloin. It's usually the same size. I call that my hidden tenderloin. You can, you can slow, I mean, you can cook that in a cast iron skillet with some garlic, rosemary, a little bit of oil and butter, and then slice it up. And your family will be like, this is phenomenal. Okay. So that's, is that the whole hind quarter then? Yeah. Like I, I mean, basically top round, bottom round, you can maybe do steaks yeah. at the bottom. Top round, bottom round, uh, sirloin, your sirloin tip. And then you have like your, you'll have like, some guys will call it a little, a little thing. I'm like, no, that's just scrap that's going to go into your grind pile. And then you've got your, your shank that goes onto it. That's your whole hind quarter for the most part. Yeah. So what, um, and maybe I'm just doing it wrong. I, my butcher basically cuts up the very best steaks, like the backstrap stuff and then grinds everything else. No, I mean, I, that's, that's a bad call for the most part. What I grind is my shoulder, I sh- like my shoulder meat on white tails, just cause it, this, the roast and stuff are a lot thinner. Mm-hmm. There is that blade steak. It's that kind of like that, triangle type steak that runs on the front of the scapula not or the back of the scapula it's going to be a little bit thinner and that one otherwise i usually take all that and then we'll trim it throw that in my grind piles and then all my trimmings will go into that i don't usually cut back straps into steaks i'll cut them into because what happens is the thinner the cut the more moisture is leaving the the less tender it's going to be so if you were to keep it like the size of this little notebook right here which is you know like a a four by six, you know, you can get okay. big and then cook that whole and slice that into that. Now you've got a medium rare. So think of like a big steak that you would have. So like, you're saying like a six inch se- section of backstrap, backstrap mm-hmm. you leave like as a little, um, kind of like you'd be cooking like a prime rib or something. Yeah. Well, no, you're going to cook it just like you would a steak and then you're going to slice into it. So like for my, family, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Like, you know, a prime rib, they yeah, cook the whole yeah, thing and then slice yeah, it. Yeah. That, that kind of, okay. And that's and like, and then you've got that crust on the outside. It's all beautiful. Yeah. And rare yeah. On the inside. So like, like my daughters always fight over the center cut. Right. So I'm slicing the backstrap and then like they'll run in and like, I'm like, back off. That's mine. I cooked it. Um, uh-huh. and then it's that medium rare all the way through. You're not drying out. Uh, you're and you do that with the, the whole backstrap. You, you set up that way to be I, cooked whole and then I sliced. Don't cut any, I don't cut any backstraps into steaks because okay. even if you have over four people, you cook that backstrap, you now slice it. Everyone grabs steak off of, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's versus like, Hey, here's a steak. It's crispy on all the sides. Hopefully this one's medium rare. Hopefully this one's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone does want it more, you throw it back on and sear it up a little bit. But if anyone wants, so out of the white tail, how much? If you do it this way, do you know approximately, like, you know, what percentage of it would be steaks, what percentage of it would be roast, and what percentage would be burger? And when I say steaks, I include that backstrap thing you're doing. I would say you're probably it's probably going to be like a like a sixty twenty twenty. Sixty percent steaks, steaks twenty percent okay. roast, twenty percent ground, 
Um, there are that's that's total game changer for me because I think I'm I think my guy is burgering way too much. Well, and here's the deal: what you're going to find with butchers too, it's it's they're going to save unless you have a phenomenal butcher that you know 100. Guys are bringing in six, seven, eight, nine whitetail a day. They're going to take all the scrap. So you did a phenomenal shot on yours, mm-hmm. but Billy Bob Joe let let you know let his sit for 18 hours, and you're like, why is this meat chewy? Why is it sour? Yeah, dude. There's no way. Like, yeah. And so that's number one. Like, listeners, do not use a butcher that mixes everybody's meat together. I will. Yeah, I know a lot, dude. Whatever. I personally, I am very particular about that because I do take care of my stuff, and I've also been the guy who didn't take care of it when I first started and realized how nasty it is. And I want nothing to do with that. Yeah. And so like, and it's not that hard to butcher yourself. Like I I'm coming out with a whole series. We just, Oh, so do you butcher your own? I have only taken it to butcher that very first time. Oh, okay. Okay. So I, in, in the classes I teach, it's teaching people how to do it themselves. So it is hands on. They get a knife when they come to the class, they shoot their deer, they gut their deer, they skin their deer, they butcher, they quarter their deer, they process their deer. They special cut their deer. They grind their deer. They vacuum seal their deer. They take their deer home uh, yeah. in that process. And it's, it's amazing to watch these people. Like I've had Texans who have done hunting their entire life, you know, and they're in their forties and fifties. They come in, they're like, yeah, I'm never taking it to a butcher again. And you can buy all your processing gear for the cost of what it would be to take your animals to the butcher for that season. Right. You for can buy, one, one animal. Right. You can, you can buy a really yeah. good vacuum sealer. I mean, you can buy a chamber vac for 400 bucks and that chamber vac is going to be restaurant quality. Every ounce out of there, you can buy a super high end 1.5 horsepower grinder that has a double grind with sausage casing stuffers and all the other stuff, you know, for 600 bucks. And you, you're, you're looking at 1500 bucks. You can have knives and all the processing gear for the rest of your time hunting and, and butchering. And it's so, so if a guy is not proficient, like you're doing one or two animals a year, so you're never going to get really great at it because you still have the repetition. How long would it take a guy like that to butcher an animal? From start to finish, usually I would say it takes someone about five to six hours to okay. break down the animal into primals and then break down the primals into usable cuts. Okay. Uh, I, I've done my, my kind of, my average on a deer from start to finish is about 20 minutes Yeah, um, oh, for where, where it's laying on the table, ready to be vacuum sealed and processed. 20 minutes. I did. You butcher I, did an animal. I, did, I did four antelope in 45 minutes. And I had people that I, after I was done with the cuts, they were, yeah. they were vacuum sealing. We had, okay. yeah, you had an assembly line going oh, on. We had four. I, I was doing all the cuts, all the butchering. And then I would just put them on a thing and I had someone labeling like my dad labeling. My best friend was vacuum sealing. Yeah. And in, 40, yep. in 45 minutes, four antelope were, were, That's in, awesome. were in the chest freezer. So um, do you have uh, so tell me about aging okay. and, and what role that plays, how you do it. How important is it? First of all, how important is age? Like it, it, in, in that, I guess it's called dry aging. And also I, I, what temperature does it need to be at? Sorry, I, d- I know nothing about it and I hear about it and I don't really know anything about it. So for you and I, usually we're not at home <laughs> when we shoot out. Right. Yeah. And so we're usually packing up and we're usually flying somewhere, driving somewhere with a crap ton of meat that we're coming home with. And so for us to hang a whole animal is pretty non-existent. Um, I know for me, I live in Orange County and 
if I was to hang something in my garage, it would never get to that 36 to 38 degrees that I'm looking for, for that's what, that's what needs to be for dry aging. aging. You want that 36. So you want it where bacteria is going to grow 40 to 41 degrees and above like negative bacteria. And then, but below that 34 is when you start getting into freezing. Right. So that's Mm -hmm. that 30, 34 to 38 is your ideal. And then you also want to look at humidity. You want that 70 to 73% humidity. Um, to help dry out the outside of that steak as you know, without a lot of mold and bacteria growing, it keeps it at a, at a healthy. And so a lot of guys in Texas in the the Midwest where it gets super cold during deer season, like October, November, December, it's going to drop down into the twenties and thirties. They're going to hang that deer in their garage, whole deer in their garage. Cause they don't have to worry about it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. what age and how long would you recommend if somebody is able to ha- hang a whole animal in roughly those conditions, how long would you recommend that? Seven to 14 days. Um, wow. And the only problem with that is you're going to have loss. Um, you're going to have the outside of the animal is going to get hard. You're going to yeah. trim away that loss. So think about like you go to a, a really high end steakhouse, you get a 21 age steak, you know, that steak may have been a 12 ounce steak. By the time you get it, it's going to be a nine ounce steak because of moisture loss and cut off. Right. So right now I'm doing you. and I- Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I, I interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. And so we've got, when you look at the antelope itself, your, your moisture is being taken out, um, in a positive way because you're building a mm-hmm. crust on the outside and you slice away that crust and you're left, you're left with this beautiful, deep nutty type flavored meat, um, that just melts in your mouth. And you can take a super, super tough cut of meat and allow it to dry age. And it's going to make that cut of meat a lot more tender when you're cutting into a steak. So that's kind of the dry aging. There is a wet aging as well. So, so to be clear, it mainly affects the tenderness. Does it also affect flavor? Tender, like tenderness and flavor. You're going to get, you're going to get kind of a, a mild nutty flavor off of the meat. Um, mm-hmm. And it, to me, so you and I shoot a lot of whitetail off of really beautiful crops, right? Mm-hmm. So it's going to actually take that. It's going to elevate that flavor. It's going to become a lot richer, a lot. I mean, you've, you've had aged steaks at, at, at restaurants, I would assume. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you can tell the flavor, right? You can tell the mm-hmm. kind of the, the smoothie silkness of the meat. You can tell that, that richness that's there that wasn't there because it's allowing, you're allowing, you're allowing the natural enzymes within the meat to break down the meat in a natural mm-hmm. way, in a healthy environment, which is in the coast. Those, those enzymes are going to create their own gases, their own, and all that stuff that they're eating is actually going to add to that overall flavor of that. Yeah. So, um, does it, does it help with the gamey flavor at all? Depends on what like gamey flavor it is. Uh, yeah. because to me, I always tell everybody like gamey can't be a flavor when it's in everything, you can't have an elk that tastes gamey and a bird that tastes gamey. Once we identify what that gamey flavor is, like we talked about with antelope, you can really start to understand what that is. So shooting a, a, a low lying elk who's in all that sagebrush is going to taste a completely different than a, than a high mountain, Rocky mountain who's eating pine and mountain grass and everything else that's going there. They're going to be two completely animals. I mean, yeah. yes, it's a Rocky mountain elk, but you shoot one lower Colorado and upper Colorado going to taste completely. Yeah. Different. I, I, I was fortunate enough to kill a few, uh, crop fed elk. Oh, oh man. man. What a difference. Oh, it's like grass fed elk or like grass yeah. beef. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then there's, like I said, then there's also wet aging. Wet aging is a lot of okay. people. So wet aging is where you would take, um, 
say you would take your, your backstrap cut and you're going to vacuum seal it, take out all the, the air that you can. This is tried and true method for a lot of people. You're not going to get any loss on this animal um, because you're not going to cut anything off because there's nothing drying and shrinking. Right? Mm, yeah. And then you allow, you, you put that in your fridge at, again, your fridge is going to be anywhere between 34 to 38, 38, 39 degrees is an average fridge. And you're going to let that sit in its own juices and allow the same enzymes to work. In, it, uh, in its own juices and you're going to actually wet age that where it's going to become tender. It's going to become more moist. The only problem you're going to have finding with the wet age is if it is a stronger flavored animal, it is going to be a lot stronger flavored because it's sitting in all those hemoglobin. Mm, that are going okay. okay. So how long would you leave something in the fridge like that? Same seven to 14 days. Okay. As long as there's no oxygen, there's no negative bacteria within okay. a certain amount of time. Can, can you, um, can you do that post freezing? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So if you want to eat, you know, you could have like a rotation of stuff in your fridge that you're going to eat, but you pull out of the freezer 10 days early. Yep. I do it all the time. So okay. I will, I will take, you know, like, like the other night or last week. So every Sunday I meal prep for my entire week with my family and I go grocery shopping on Sunday and then I have breakfast, lunch, dinner planned out until next Sunday. Okay. So Sunday I pull all my meats, pull anything that I'm going to make for dinner for the entire week. If I know I want a wet aged steak, I'll pull it out two weeks before. So I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, I really want some bone and chops or my daughter's like debt. And I'm like, okay, I'll pull that out, throw them in the fridge two Sundays before. So when that, whatever that week comes, I'll take it open. I'll cut open that bag. I'll rinse it once it's been aged and then kind of let it dry out a little bit. And then I'll cook it and the flavors are, you're not going to get that nutty flavor. It's going to be more of kind of an intense, like umami style. Like I don't even know how to, it's more of a, f- a taste on the back of your tongue than the front of your tongue. Kind of <laughs> that, that more salty type aspect of it. Cause the way that it's sitting. So again, it's completely different methods that result in the same tenderness aspect of the meat. So, so the dry age gets you uh tender, and helps flavor yep. the wet age gets you tender. But if it's like a really gamey piece, it's probably not going to help you out too much. Correct. 100%. Okay. Gotcha. So when we first got on the call, you said something about you had just dry aged something. Yeah. So do you, is there like a way to do that? At, you know, post freezing, let's say, can you dry age? Yeah. So there is uh, a company called pro smoker. I mean, you can probably tag them in your stuff. Uh, they just came out with an at home dry ager. Um, so you can have it and I can have it. Um, their, their small one, which is like their 50. Um, it can hold a whole back leg of a white tail. Well, an average, oh, wow. not like your big mon. you know, you're getting your cold, you know, your December Montana, you know, white tail, which the leg is the size of you and I No, but <laughs> your, your average Midwestern Southern state white tail, which 90% of the guys are shooting, right. It can, it can hold the whole leg that's been taken off from shank up and you can dry age that whole back leg and then cut it into steaks, which I've done. And it's insane. Um, but what I wanted to do was I'm doing a whole test on, uh, weight loss compared of dry aging to wet aging. So I took the same cut on a white tail. And the dry aging just got finished. The wet aging, I still have one more day on. Uh, and I hung it in there and I locked it and I put it at, you know, with this dry ager, you can set it at a certain temperature and, and humidity. And it will maintain that humidity and that temperature the entire length of your time. 
Uh, so I set it at 35 degrees and I set mm-hmm. it at 71% humidity and it goes from 35 to 36 degrees and then your humidity from 70 to 72. Mm-hmm. And you just leave it, you let it sit for 14 days and then you take it out and you trim off all cause it'll get like a hard crust. Yeah. Trim that off just like you would silver skin. I mean, you can really tell the difference. Um, I just posted the picture on Instagram, uh, from field You can check it out. Mm-hmm. You can see how much more deeper red, uh, that meat is. And when you smell it, it smells very nutty. Um, and very, it's it, the texture of it is firm yet not like hard. Um, and so what, what I did is I weighed the steak before I weighed the steak after, and it was a bone in rack. Uh, I weighed it, I weighed it after, and then I looked at, and then I weighed the, the, the loss, the cutoff. And so out of that, you know, that 22 ounce, or I think it was 23.5 ounce steak, I only lost 7.2 overall weight off of it. So these guys are like, well, no overall weight ounces. So I, oh, ounces. Gotcha. Okay. I, you could do percentages, but people are like, oh, what does that mean? So for yeah, I yeah. can knock it out and say, okay, this thing weighed, you know, 22. So we get what 60 ounces in a pound. So you're looking at, you're looking at uh, a one and a half pound, one and mm-hmm. yeah. one and three quarter pound steak. I only lost a quarter of a, not even a quarter of a pound. Of, I mean, I only lost, seven ounces, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is nothing, you know, and, and you look at that overall stake. So that's what my cutoff was. So then what I'll do mm-hmm. is I'll take the wet age one, which I have weighed and then I'll take it out, rinse it, trim anything I need to trim and then do the overall weight. And then we're going to do flavor comparison yeah. with family and some, so with the dry age, you really need a bigger piece of meat because you're going to have to trim it. Correct. Like you can't dry age a small butterfly want, steak. Or no, something. no. Yeah. And so that's what you want. Like, if you're going to, if you're going to cut your backstrap into, um, uh, steaks, you know, you can dry age that whole backstrap and it's going to shrink up and it's going to get a little thinner. Uh, that's why you try to do like bigger cuts. Like if you're doing, yeah. if you're doing the whole leg, you're just trimming off what you're going to trim off anyway. Uh, yeah. and then you have that super tender steaks on the inside and then you're, you can even use, utilize those roasts in a better way because those roasts that were going to be a lot tougher, they're going to have time to mm-hmm. enzymes to break them down. And it's really going to start, start the slow cooking early. Right. So it's, it's <laughs> yeah. once you get into the molecular side of cooking, it's just like anything else. It's like you bow hunters with their addiction for getting the most amount of speed out of their bow that they can. So they're looking at, at strings. They're looking at, you know, um, stabilizers are looking at cams. They're looking at the, the size of a knock on their arrow. They're looking at fletchings or like, that's the same way I nerd out when I look at a piece of meat, you know, mm. when, when, when a deer walks in, like we, I, sh- I shot a deer two weeks ago and the deer was walking in and the camera guy looks at me and goes, what's going through your head? I go, I'm just thinking that I really want to try this recipe out with this guy. And I'm sorry. And you know, I, I think I want to make like a, like a, like a chorizo stuffed this with that. And he's like, no, I mean like, what do you think about the deer? I was like, I'm thinking about that. If I make a good shot that his whole back leg is going to be turned into, you know, into chorizo. And then the other half, I just got a dry ager. So I'm going to, I'm going to make real pepperoni. Like right now I've got, I've got pepperoni that are on the smoker, hundred percent venison pepperoni uh, with wild boar cut fat. And it's going to, I'm making legit pepperoni for, you know, like it's going to be smoked and it's going to be dry aged. Yeah. Yeah. 21 days. Like this is going to be like super expensive, high end, you know, not, not just, you know, Oh, Hey, here's just, this is going to be 
real. And then I've not like your, your normal summer sausage. No, no, this is going to be yeah. a pepperoni consistency that you would get if you went to your interesting. And so he starts laughing. He goes, no, for reals. I said, that's all I think about when a turkey comes in. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, Oh man. Like, so I was, I was, we, we were hunting Turkey in Tennessee and we were right by the Jack Daniel distillery. Like we could see it in the distance and this, this Tom comes strutting in and I'm sitting there and I look up and I see the distillery and I was like, I wonder if I can make a Jack Daniel bourbon glaze to go on top of this. Like, that's what I'm thinking as this turkey's like, yeah, he comes in, I, I, you know, I make him into a jelly head. And then I go, we need to go over to the, to the distillery right now. Like I need to get Jack Daniels. Cause I, ha- I have this thing in my head and we went back to camp that night and everyone's like, you just thought of this. And I was like, yeah, how good is it? They're like, it's so good. I mean, people were like <laughs> in the pan with this, with this Jack Daniel bourbon glaze. And it's, to me, that's the exciting part about what I do is my mind is always thinking about the next food, the next, this, the next, that, you know, sitting there watching a cooking show with my daughter. And I was like, I can do that with elk, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's taking that meat beyond the field, you know, beyond the, 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 the popper, beyond the chili, beyond the burger and sitting there saying, what, what, you know, how can I honor this animal? How can I respect this animal? I remember I opened up in Texas, we shot, we shot deer in Texas two weeks ago. And I always kind of open up the stomach just to see what they're eating. I know it's disgusting, but that's mm-hmm. what I do. And they had full, um, uh, cactus fruit in their gut, like full, full on wow. cactus fruit. I'm whole. I mean, whole. And I was like, that's gotta hurt. Um, but all of a sudden my mind started racing. And so I was like, Hey, we need to go pick a bunch of prickly pears. Because I want to make a prickly pear barbecue sauce to go on top of the animal that was eating prickly pears in its stomach. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't if the if the animal's eating it, then I have to honor that animal. Right. And so, you know, I shot a I, I shot a turkey that was uh eating fermented apples in here in Southern California. And I went and I picked apples from the orchard that it was this old orchard that was no longer an orchard, and it was all these fermented apples. And I made a like 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 a drunken sliced apple for over the top of the, I'm like the turkey's eating fermented apples. He's drunk. I mean, he was walking around in cert, like figure eights. And it's just, to me, if I can look at what that animal's doing and the flavor of it and, and really, I don't know, pay honor to that animal with dinner around the table. I think that's, to me, that's the most important part. And yeah. Yeah, I may not go out there and shoot the best, you know, at hundred yards and kill an elk with the, with a bow. But the, the one I do get, everyone's going to go around camp and they're going to have a lot better story to tell around the, the, the dinner table than that one guy that was out there by himself, you know, that's super interesting, man. And that, and I, for me, it's really cool to hear this perspective Uh, as like, you know, I'm just a, like an antler fanatic, right? I'm a huge trophy hunter and all that stuff. And I eat the meat and like it and whatever, but like your perspective on this has been really, really cool. Like, you know, people do things for different reasons. And I, I definitely could use a healthy uh, dose of, of, your perspective. That's super cool. And I think that was a great way to, to tie things up. I mean, that, that, what you, that, that last, last stuff you just said there was, was fantastic, really helping people understand why you see things the way you do and, 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 you know, how you're able to get these results. They just don't happen. You've put a lot of thought and energy into this. It's really, really commendable. Um, Jeremiah, that was awesome, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to, to get my hands on your cookbook when it comes out for now. I'll check out your website. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, if anyone wants to go look from field to plate.com, it's really, really easy. Yeah. 
Uh, there's a little search thing. Um, I've got about 200 recipes that aren't up there. Cause like I said, we're working on a cookbook. Yep. Um, I'm doing all self publishing because I, I want it to be the lowest cost point for everybody out there. Um, and I want cool. it to be, it's very, very informative. It's not just, Hey, here's cookbook. It's everything we talked about today on how to do certain things are going to be in there. Cause I want someone to be able to take that cookbook and say, Hey, I now feel comfortable and confident enough to go and do this. So I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate yeah. us talking and, and there's nothing against a good set of antlers. I mean, I've got, I've got walls. Yeah. Um, but to me, it's, it's really fun when someone looks at the wall and says, Hey, tell me a story of that one. And I said, okay, let me go cook it for you real quick. And then I'll tell you this. Yeah. So I like it, man. It's fantastic. Well, Jeremiah, yeah, that really, really good podcast. Appreciate it. I know the listeners are going to love it. So yeah, thanks. Man. Appreciate uh, it. Thank you. Yeah. If you want to go out and hunt together and cook, let me know. Hey, absolutely. Dude, Let's right. do that. 